Hebrews chapter 10. We're in the back half of Hebrews chapter 10. Many of you have seen the movie, and I commend it to you. It's one of the best films I think ever made in the English language, Bridge on the River Kwai, that is based on a book by a World War II POW named Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon survived the horrors of a Japanese death camp in the valley of the River Kwai in Burma. And in his book, he describes how unbearable despair took over the camp and transformed a place that was spiritually and hopefully dead into what he called a church without walls. The POWs were turned into slaves and forced to build what was known to history a railroad of death. And it was for transporting prisoners to the camps and it was for transporting Japanese soldiers to the battlefront. The prisoners were tortured, diseased, starved, and worked to the point of death. And of that uh, first few months there in the camp, uh, er, or excuse me, Ernest Gordon's reflection was, uh, every man's hand was against every other's. It was a terribly, terribly bleak place. Uh, at one day's end, as the tools were being counted and the prisoners were about to return to their camp, the Japanese guard declared that a shovel was missing. He demanded to know which prisoner had stolen the shovel, and he shouted in broken English, all die, all die. He shrieked it over and over again, indicating to the prisoners that unless the person who had stolen the shovel came forward and took responsibility that the entirety of the mass gathered there would be shot. He cocked his rifle, aimed it at the prisoners, and promised to shoot them all. And at that moment, one Scottish soldier stepped forward, and standing at attention, he calmly declared, I did it. And the guard viciously clubbed the hapless prisoner to death. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again, and no shovel was missing. That soldier had sacrificed his life so that all of his compatriots could live. Perfectly innocent, having done nothing wrong, offered his own body as a sacrifice for the salvation of many. Does that remind you of anyone that we've talked about recently? Does that remind you of a passage that we have read in the first half of Hebrews chapter 10 about the nature of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who, though sinless, offers himself as a sacrifice once for all time so that those who have been made holy, who are justified, might continue to be made holy. That is, they might be sanctified. In light of that sacrifice, in light of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, in light of the spilled blood and marred body of Jesus, this is what the author of Hebrews has to say, starting in verse 19. In talking about how that sacrifice has equipped us to live a life of faith. That sacrifice has changed our lives, has changed our fate, and will change what you do what you do tied into who you are never again the same starting in verse 19 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We'll read more than that, but let's pause for a moment and pray before we go any further. Father, it is our hopeful anticipation this morning that we would be reminded of the fact that by the blood and body of Jesus, we have been given new lives, new marching orders, newly capable by Jesus Christ. Help us to live those lives, not in solitary confinement, but within the parameters of the body that you have given us, 
these brothers and sisters in whose midst we stand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What I want to do is we want to understand that there are three paragraphs here. There are three sections. It divides pretty easily. We can see a couple of things here. I've called the first one work. Jesus' sacrifice enables believers to live faithful lives. Then comes warning. Well, we've been exposed to a number of warning passages in the book of Hebrews. This is warning passage number four. The third section, you see it there on your notes, is withstand. It talks about perseverance, how we're going to live this Christian life out. But we start first with this understanding of how the sacrifice of Jesus enables us to live faithful lives. In fact, what we learn in that first paragraph, which is, interestingly here in Greek, one sentence. Uh, any grammarians in the room here? I know Jason runs a publishing company. He's got a whole bevy of editors. Uh, at some point, they would say, you've got to cut that sucker down. It's just way too long. Uh, but think about that. The next time you read it, maybe not in the English way it's punctuated here, but in the original Greek, this is one complicated sentence. It has two parts. It talks about what Jesus has done to transform you, and you'll see that word since two times. Since, pointing back to what Jesus has done. And then you're going to see a couple of these let us statements that follow. There are three of those. So there are a couple of since statements, and for you Greek nerds in the room, those let us statements, those hortatory subjunctives follow afterward. Because Jesus has done this, now you do this. That's what that first paragraph says. Because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus for believers, you are now equipped for faithful living in the period between Jesus' first coming and his second. Because he came and died for you, you can do what he's called you to do. And that's how we're going to live this thing out, the author says, until Jesus comes back. So take a look again at those two sense statements. Those are really important. And what he says here is, evocative, bold, it's tangible, it's, it's visceral. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, confidence, and I'm sure all of you are thinking again of uh, Hebrews 4, around verse 16 there, right? That we can boldly enter the throne room of God and bring our requests and supplications to him, right? By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain pause there for a moment what curtain is he talking about do you remember this discussion we had a few weeks ago about the temple and how there were different parts to the temple there was the outer court and then there was the temple proper and, and there was the inner place where the priests would go in and do their work and offer sacrifices sacrifices for sin gift offerings but then there was a special place the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant was and to get back there which only happened once a year the high priest had to cleanse himself, make sure that he had offered a special sacrifice for his own sins so that he was ritually clean in spiritual clean to enter into that room only once a year. So after he had made all of those sacrifices, he was allowed to go through the curtain. And we're talking about a three or four inch thick, 30 foot tall curtain that veiled the people from the residing place of God in his glory. Now, that, there's the veil that we're talking about there, and this is a fascinating moment because you remember when Jesus dies, it's in that moment that the curtain is torn in two that symbolizes how Jesus has erased all the barriers between us and God. That's what he does. He makes us holy so that we don't have to be worried to stand in God's holiness anymore. We've been made worthy because of the blood of Jesus. Now, knowing that, that little historical tidbit, see how he applies it here starting in verse 20. The new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Right? Through his flesh. In a bold shift, the writer changes from a, a spatial phrase, right? That is, uh, Christ making way through the inner sanctuary to an instrumental phrase. He does this by means of his flesh. He associates the two in an illusion. There is the splitting of the curtain, which is made possible by the splitting of his body. That's how that's happened. There's hardly a more visceral analogy that could be drawn to demonstrate what it is that Christ has done for the believer. The curtain was rent so that you could stand before a holy God. And that curtain was rent because the body of Christ was rent. He goes on to say in verse 22, And since we have 
excuse me, into verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, who is that priest? Well, we saw it in chapter 7, we saw it in 8, we saw it in 9. It's Jesus. Jesus is the priest over the heavenly temple not made with human hands. We saw that. Since he's done all of that, now we get to those let us statements. There's three of them, right? Number one, what does it look like to live in light of the sacrifice of Jesus? Number one, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. How can we draw near? How do we have the legitimacy to do that? He says, well, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies were washed with pure water. How can I draw near? Because unlike the old covenant, which made you look ritually clean on the outside, the new covenant is grounded in the blood and body of Christ. Remember, we say that every time we take communion. Here is the new covenant, what? In my blood. Now, what's different about the blood of Jesus Christ as compared to the blood of all of those animals that were sacrificed for all those many years? That blood could never take away sins. But Jesus' blood takes away sins for all time. Jesus' blood cleans you not only on the outside, but also on the inside. It's effectual. It actually does something. So the first thing he tells us to do, he says, draw near. How can I do that? I can draw near because of what Jesus has done for me. I should draw near because Jesus has made me worthy. Verse 23, you get the second one there. Let us hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, how can I hold fast? How can I hold fast? We know at this point that there are already people who are not holding fast. We've seen that from the very earliest chapters of the book of Hebrews, that there is a group of people who are abandoning their professed faith in Jesus Christ, who are walking away from the Christian faith, and going back to the Judaism that they know, that old religion that they're familiar with. And what he's telling them is, it's a fight. You won't casually arrive at Christian faith. It's not incidental. It's not accidental. It's an absolute war. Fight for it. Hold on to it. As if compelled off the cliff and holding on with all your strength just on the tips of your fingers hold fast this is important because you're going to have to understand that even 2,000 years later we are still fighting this exact same battle the battle for faith because the temptation will be to walk away it will be to walk away to other religions it will be to walk away from faith altogether it will be to walk away to a vague kind of moralism that calls itself christianity but is nothing other than secular ethics repackaged with a cross on the front you will have to fight to live a distinctively christian faith is it possible can we win this battle it is, right? Verse 22, he says, draw near. How can I do that? Because he's made me clean. Verse 23, hold fast. How can I do that? For he who promised is faithful. I can hold fast not because of my capacity to exude faith. I can hold fast because of his capacity to exude faith. Because even when I'm faithless, he is faithful. You see here how every time we're being called to do something, we're equipped to do that thing because of what he has done and is doing for us. It's the only way. You could not save yourself. That is, you couldn't prove yourself worthy for justification. Similarly, even though we're called to work on our own salvation with fear and trembling, our sanctification is entirely dependent on the will and grace of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's getting us through. He's drawing us near. He's holding us fast. Thirdly, here's that third let us statement. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, just if you write in your Bibles like pagans do, just underline or circle that good works. We're going to come back to that. There is a belief in certain circles of Christendom that good works is a bad word. Good works is a good thing. We're going to talk about that, but in the right context. 
stir up one another to love and good works. And if there is a verse in this entire chapter that I'm sure everybody is familiar with, it's what happens in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? We, we have been pushed back over and over again to think about the first coming of Jesus and what he did when he died on the cross. But you're also living in light of the second coming of Jesus and what he will do when he comes to pour out the wrath of God on those who have no faith and to bring with him in new and glorified bodies those who have lived by faith. We are living in the tension between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And in the middle he says, get together and encourage one another. This is a team sport. You understand? That old John Donne poem, no man is an island. Each man is a piece of the continent. And when a clod falls off, we are all the lesser for it. The weekly corporate meeting of the body of Christ is essential to the cause of promoting the kind of faith that produces good works. Failure to meet makes you complicit in the falling away of those whose faith was not yet fully formed. Remember those people who were abandoning Christ for the Judaism they knew before? Barnabas is telling them here, do not let them stand alone. F.F. Bruce in his capable commentary in Hebrew says, the readers, readers will be more apt to confess their hope courageously and unhesitatingly if they encourage one another. Christian faith and witness will flourish the more vigorously in an atmosphere of Christian fellowship, and this will never happen if they keep one another at a distance. Therefore, every opportunity of coming together and enjoying their fellowship and faith and hope must be welcomed and must be used for mutual encouragement. You have to show up. We use this phrase a fair amount when it comes to leadership team meetings and other things here at the church. Decisions are made by those who show up. Encouragement is also manufactured by those who show up. I love the analogy that Paul uses uh, there in 1 Corinthians in 11 and 12 of the body of Christ. And he says, tellingly there, anticipating the kickback from those who maybe would reject meeting together as the body, there is no part that is lesser than another part. The eyes can't disown the hands. The hands can't disown the feet. We are all important to the collective body of Jesus Christ here. The point being this. The person sitting beside you needs you. Right? They need you. And when you're not here, their faith is strained because God appointed you to be here. And so for whatever reason you have left, you have to ask yourself, was it a good enough reason for me to let my brother and sister stand in neglect for what it is that I'm about to do? Similarly, and this is the other side of that exact same coin, you need them. And so you're asking the question as well, when you miss the assembly of the body of Jesus Christ, is what I'm doing more important than the bolstering of my faith. Will this help me grow? Is this pushing me closer to Christ? And almost always the answer is no. Anything we prioritize above obedience to Jesus Christ is sin. And sin draws us away from him. Sin weakens our faith. But meeting together the body of Christ is essential. It's obedience. And it's an obedience that is grounded in the acknowledgement that I need the people around me, and they need me too. It's a team sport. No hot dogs in the body, right? There is important work that has to happen that cannot happen if you are not here. Work in your own heart, work in your own faith, and work in the hearts and faces of the people around you. You bear a responsibility. God has given it to you. You should better take it seriously. If you don't, and here's the warning, 
there are those whose faith is teetering. There are those who are on the wire, and we don't know exactly where their faith will land. And here's what happens then. We find this laid out starting verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, think about what he's just said here in the whole first half of this chapter. He said, you need a sacrifice that can actually change you. Jesus Christ has offered that sacrifice once for all times. You go on sinning, that sacrifice will not apply to you. Now, I don't think he's talking about just everyday sins, right? It was common in the early church for uh, an understanding to be perpetuated that after you were justified in Jesus Christ, you no longer sinned or you shouldn't. Uh, Tertullian wouldn't offer the possibility that you could sin at all after you had been justified or else you were reprobate, <laughs> right? And I don't know what he does with John's writings. See, John says if you say that you don't sin anymore, you're lying, obviously. Uh, but if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I don't think what he's talking about here is just some sin of omission or some random thing. I think he's talking about apostasy. You claim to be following Jesus Christ. You claim to live under the blood of the Lamb. You claim that you are a follower of Him, that you are living by faith. But you have walked away from that faith. You have walked away for idols. You've walked away for another religion. You have walked away for your own agenda. For those people who were professing followers of Jesus, but proved by their works and by their mouths that they indeed were not actually followers of Jesus, there remains no sacrifice for sins. But instead, verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now think about that, what we just said in 1 Corinthians 11, the body of Christ, how essential it is that you're here for those people around you, that there is someone who maybe their seed has been planted in rocky soil, right? And here you have been guided to them as a part of the story of their faith, their journey of faith. Is it not possible that God has put you with them in good soil discipleship to mound around them the faith and the teaching and the truth and the discernment and the wisdom necessary to help them grow? From a purely human perspective, isn't it possible that if we walk away from the assembly, that we neglect meeting in this body, that we are leaving people in a terribly dangerous situation where they are opening themselves up to a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? That's the sin. This is how we know we're talking about apostasy, right? This isn't a, a common lie. Uh, this isn't lust. This, isn't, this is trampling underfoot the Son of God. This is profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. There was someone in that early church who had for years of their lives offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and someone had said you poor fool don't you know there is one sacrifice for sins and they wept at the beauty of the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for them and then they walked away and they took the change out of their pocket and they bought an animal and they wrapped a rope around its neck and drug it up to the priests and spilled its blood. Ignoring the singular efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus. What have they done? They have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know verse 30 for we know whom he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. These are quotations from Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses. And then in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you fear for those around you? You should. 
for those sitting in this room, when you are not here, you are exposing them in part to the kind of dread that says it is fearful to lay in the hands of a holy God. Now, we are all in God's hands, right? This is a common analogy that's used throughout the Bible, even in the New Testament. Those who are living by faith are secure in the hands of God. Those who are plagued with faithlessness live in the fear of the fury of living in the hands of God. The most famous sermon ever preached on American soil was preached by Jonathan Edwards 300 years ago, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he used this passage, and there was a particular analogy that was used throughout that sermon, and it was of a spider over a vast, endless, no shore within sight lake of fire and misery. A spider hanging by a single fragile thread. And he said, this is your life. Do you not know the peril above which you live? That there is a living God who will not allow a single sin to slide by in eternity. And maybe the most revealing moment of the entirety of this particular paragraph is how he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? He makes a comparison here between what happened when you lived under the law and what happens when you live now under the new covenant. It's an interesting analogy that he draws there. Because all along what he said is that living under the old covenant was a terrible place to live because while it revealed the holiness of God, it never actually made you holy. And the whole argument that's come out of the book of Hebrews is how the new covenant is so much better for you. It requires only one sacrifice. It actually changes you. It gives you access to a priest who is sinless. It helps you get to the heavenly temple where God is and that we can stand there in boldness and confidence. But something else does happen, something negatively here for those who have very little faith. Under the auspices of the new covenant, under the old covenant, they were at least in part ignorant about what it meant for the Messiah to come and to offer his life as a sacrifice for many. And so they were punished in light of their ignorance. He says, how much worse is it then? The punishment that will be wrought upon those who know exactly what Jesus has done and what it cost him. I turned 18. Uh, No, it was a little bit before that. I turned 18 my freshman year of college. I was 17. And I had just got accepted to Cedarville. And uh, Pop's in the garage. He's working on something. And he says, come out here. I've got to tell you two things. Right? Number one, uh, I'm proud of you for getting into school. I love you. But you've got one year left in my house. You can use it all at once or you can spread it across four summers. All right? <laughs> yes, sir. Number two, your mom and I are going to pay for college. And here's what that means. We will pay for A's and B's. You will pay for everything else. (laughs) Right? And uh, I wondered if he had remembered that my junior year of college when I started taking Greek and I tanked in midterm and I got a C plus. And uh, that was still in the days when they mailed home grades at the end of the semester and he got it before I did. And I walked in the door and he said, you made it through your third year. That's a good job. I'm proud of you. Uh, Cash or check. (laughs) And I made payments all summer long on that C. Then uh, I didn't take Greek again until I got to seminary. I knew what it cost my parents to send me to school. We lived in a beautiful house that I had grown up in most of my elementary, middle school, high school years. And they sold that house and moved into a very little house to help put me through school. And in light of that, I tried to work as hard as I could. I mean, I worked a job, but I also worked at school. That was my job. They were very clear about that. We're going to work, now you're going to work. Don't blow it. <laughs> now, there was a guy in our dorm, and uh, 
I've been in a similar situation. His parents were a little worse off than ours were, and they volunteered to send him to school. And so his mom, who had stayed home uh, as a stay-at-home mom whole life, got a job. Uh, and she got this miserable job in a factory in town. She was working 50, 55 hours a week, and they were just getting by. And it was one of those, like, we knew the sacrifices that they were making. Just as friends, we knew what they were going through. That she was working bitterly long hours, and there was a lot of, like, peanut butter and jelly and ramen in their house just to make the payments happen. And so we couldn't believe the kind of way that he responded. He just was up all night, every night, playing video games and watching movies and so he was exhausted when the dawn came and it was time to get up and go to class. And so he'd sleep in. And he skipped class. And, and this is one of those weird things about going to a Christian college is there's an awful lot of grace there, right? So he just about failed out two or three times and there were an awful lot of summers where he had just incomplete grades. And the school would say, all right, one more chance, one more chance, just one more shot. And that sucker nearly bled his parents dry and had nothing to show for it at the end. And, and I mean, in the most loving way possible, we were like, hey, we love you, but you're an idiot. Don't you know what they've done for you? Don't you know the kind of sacrifices that they're making? This is not a kid who's going to school on some scholarship from some organization, some faceless bureaucracy. We knew what mom and dad were doing in order to make that possible for them. And it just had no effect on his character whatsoever. How damning it is that he says here in this middle paragraph, for those of you who are living on this side of the new covenant, who walked away from the hill Golgotha and saw the blood of Christ there staining your sins, to live in such desperate and sinful ways because you know, you know what it costs to bring you you know the sacrifice that was made. You remember the veil of his body that got you to the veil of the holiness of God. How frightful it is to live in the hands of the living God. Well, here's what comes next in verse 32. Now, uh, you remember we've had warning passages before. Hebrews chapter 6 was one of those warning passages where he absolutely hammers those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and then walks away. It's dire, the situation that they found themselves in. But he immediately follows it up with encouragement. Do you remember that? He immediately comes back and says, let, let me speak some truth into you. That is going to happen to some almost assuredly, but that's not you. That's not who you are. We, we know that there are some who are being challenged, but let me, let me speak some life into you. Let me speak some actions into you. Here's who you really are. Exact same thing happens here in Hebrews chapter 10. He lays a devastating hammer of the wrath and fury of God on them. And then he follows it up here starting in verse 32. But recall, he says, the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a uh, hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Again, you see the connection to community there. Sometimes it happened to you, and sometimes you were just standing, upholding, encouraging those that it was happening to. But it's happening. It's happening in the body. And then he says, do you remember what you did? Do you remember how you responded? Do, do you remember the proof that you can actually do what you've been called to do because you've done it before? For you had compassion, verse 34, on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here we are enunciating hope. How are you able to endure? You've done it before. You'll be able to do it again. By what mechanism? The mechanism is hope. All you might lay down now pales in comparison to what is waiting for you later. My favorite verse in all of Scripture, my very favorite passage, it is, I hope if the Lord will allow me to know when my time is over doing this thing that I've been called to do, it would be the last passage that I would ever preach. It's Matthew 13, 44. Okay? One verse. It's a parable in one verse. 
there's a man, and he's out in a field, and he's doing some work, and he's digging around, and he finds a treasure. And so he goes home, and he sells everything he has and buys that field. This is what the kingdom of God is like, Matthew says there in chapter 13. And here's what I love, because this is the clear and foundational truth of Christian living. Right? You ready for it? Nothing you give up now compares to what you will get later. Everything we have been asked to sacrifice, everything that we have been asked to crucify, every agenda that we have been asked to lay down pales in comparison to the glories and the hope of Jesus Christ. Lay it all down. It's nothing. It's chaff in the wind compared to the eternal hope of glory that we have in Jesus. For you had compassion on those in prison because you knew a better possession and an abiding one was coming. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has future tense great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. The third Explicit definition of hope there, right? You are getting something better. You can hold on. I've seen it before. I've seen you do this. I have seen you struggle. I've seen you've been beaten. I've seen that you've lived in poverty. I've seen that you've lived malnourished. You have proved it. I know who you can be. I've seen you go through all of it. Now, just keep going. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to require incredible self-sacrifice. But something better is coming. Something better is coming for you. Hold on. It's just a little while. Something better is coming. Hope. It's replete with hope. In much the same way that the warning of six is immediately followed by comfort and confidence, the passage that we have here immediately following the warning of chapter 10 is filled with encouragement. It's replete with reminders of their past faithfulness and a promise of great reward for future faithfulness. And then we find this. This is from verse 37, 38, 39. Here's a summary of the entire chapter, right? For yet a little while, just parenthetical there, and you can write there, this is uh, from Isaiah 26, 20. Yet a little while, just a little while. You have to hold on just a little while. I'm calling you to good works. I'm calling you to meet together to encourage one another in love and good works. I'm calling you to hold on. I'm calling you like the spider to climb that web under the faithful hand of God, right? I'm calling you for just a little while. It's only temporary. It's only transient, this pain and this suffering, right? Because much, much better things are coming. I just need you to understand that. Yes, this life is hard, but it's just a little while. That's the only section he quotes there. Just those couple of words from Isaiah chapter 26. And then he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2. And he says, And at the coming one, <coughs> excuse me, at the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Right, another warning. Another warning there. This comes from Habakkuk. Go ahead and turn back to Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk chapter 2. And I'll give you a second, because I'm going to guess that most of you haven't spent a whole lot of devotional time in Habakkuk lately. Right? Uh, probably not up there with, like, Psalms and Proverbs and Philippians or Acts or whatever it is you like to read. Habakkuk. You should. Habakkuk. It's fascinating. It's only three chapters. Chapter 1. We meet the prophet Habakkuk, who is a prophet to the people of God. And he says, you know what? Your people, they're miserable. They sin all the time. I hate their stinking guts. And God says, okay, I got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to send the Chaldeans. And we're going to use the Chaldeans to come in and punish my people Israel. And Habakkuk goes, oh, wh wait, what? <laughs> no, no, I told you, Lord, you know, the, your people, they're pretty miserable people. And yeah, they're sinful. And yeah, they're unrighteous. And yeah, they disdain your law. And they don't do what they're supposed to do. And they embrace false idols. But at least they're better than the Chaldeans are. The Chaldeans are absolutely miserable, wretched, sinful to the very max, at their very cores, pagans. They're even worse than your people. How dare you use them to chastise your people? And God says, don't worry about it. 
This is the means that I'm going to use in order to conform the people of God to myself. I'm going to let them live in a period of misery and trial. And they're going to be forced to make a decision in that time. Will you live by faith or will you abandon me? Will you allow me to sustain you in righteousness or will you try to sustain it all by yourself? Remember, that's what he had accused them of in this warning chapter here in Hebrews chapter 10 in this passage. He says that there are people who have given their lives over in faith to Jesus Christ. They have laid all of their sin on his shoulders and said, we thank you, my God, for your mercy and grace. And, and there were those people who had walked away from Jesus Christ and said, no, thank you very much. I'd rather bear my sins on my own shoulders and take my chances. He says here in Habakkuk chapter 2, and you'll see the slightly different phraseology here starting in verse 2, Habakkuk 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That is the vision of the enduring hope found in the God of Israel will come. Yes, it's going to take time. We're in this intermediate period where things are really hard. Faith is hard to fight for. It's a fight. It's a struggle. It is energy-exuding, exhausting work to have faith. But he says the vision is coming. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's the exact same words that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1. I think it's verse 16 or 17. The righteous will live by faith. They will endure. They will fight for their faith. They will cling to what it is that God has promised to bring about in his enduring hope. And for the New Testament believer, that means clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the hope. They will endure. I love the way that Habakkuk ends chapter uh, 2 here in verse 20. He says, if there's any idea of faithlessness or wavering, whether or not God can actually do what he's promised that he will do, remember this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God's home. He knows what's going on. There's nothing that goes down that he's not aware of. He'll complete what he said he'll do. And in fact, that's how Hebrews chapter 10 concludes there. Not with a warning, but another statement of the confidence that we can have in God. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are of that assembly, those saints who will go forward, who will march on, who will do what they've been called to do because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this passage say about who God is and what he's got for us? It says this, at least in part, our salvation is a gift from God. You've read Ephesians chapter 2 before. It's not something that we've done by our good works so that nobody can boast. It is in no way dependent on our merits. It's in no way dependent on our good works. It's something that he's done for us. But we've also read James. And in James chapter 2, we're told that a faith that's given by God is a faith that proves itself by generating good works. Again, that's what we were called to there. Live in such a way not neglecting to meet together as the head of some, but encouraging one another to what end? To stir up love and good works. Who you are will change what you do. And what you do is dependent on who you are. And this is one of the great ethics that emerges out of this chapter in Hebrews chapter 10. Because you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, because you have walked through the veil of his flesh, into the holy places of God whereby you can have confidence, we do things differently. We must come to good works by faith, not to faith by good works. But here's one of the differences between Christianity and other religions. Other religions demand that you become something that you're not. In contrast, Christian ethics points to Jesus' work on your behalf, to justification, to the cross, to the promise to make you a new creation, and says, hey, that's what you really are. Become what you are in Christ. You're being drawn into sanctification by who you really are, by your true identity, secured for you by the blood of Jesus. This is why the 
17th century Puritan William Gurnall will say, Say not that thou hast royal blood in thy veins and art born of God, unless thou canst prove thy pedigree by daring to be holy. Don't say you're one of his, unless you're willing to live like one of his. Do those things not to become something in him, but because you are something in him by the blood of Jesus Christ. Become who you are. Now, the other great theologian of the 20th century, Noel Gallagher, right? You put your money where your mouth is. Your mother said that you was real. I knew a guy from high school. We weren't close, but I knew who he was, and I followed his story. Uh, I guess I was in grad school. We first, first got Facebook, whenever that was. And he would gotten married and had a couple of kids, and they got in a car accident. And his wife was in the hospital for several months, and of all the things that plagued her, and, and her, her body grew healthier and healthier, but of all the things that plagued her was that for about a year and a half of her life, she couldn't remember who she was. She couldn't remember who her children were. She couldn't remember who her husband was. She couldn't remember the wedding. She couldn't remember the birth of the kids. Nothing. Blank slate. They talked to a bevy of specialists. And the husband asked everybody, what do I do to help her? And they said, you know, it'll take time. If it's going to happen, it's going to take time. And what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to help her remember these significant moments. Maybe one of them will help ignite the flame that will bring her memory into fire. And so he started bringing pictures from home, from their wedding day, from the days that their children were born, from all the great moments of their life when they bought their first house the good and the bad and everything in between recorded in these photographs and he brought them and he showed them to her. He filled the room with all these memories of her life. He brings her pictures not to construe some new identity for her but to remind her of who she already is. And so it is with Barnabas and so it is with Paul and so it is with Peter and John who at every temptation to define ourselves in spurious ways holds our faces up to the cross of Jesus Christ to remind us of who we already are in him. Washed in his blood, born beneath the shadow of his cross, we already have an identity. We're his. Made by him. Secured by him. Covered by him. And so what's the call of the Christian life here in Hebrews chapter 10? Embrace who you already are. Justified, adopted, redeemed, all by the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Now how do we do that? Who we become whether we embrace who we really are has an awful lot to do with the encouragement of the believers around us. I've said this over and over again, and I'm sure that people get tired of hearing it, but there are three keys to growing in the Christian life. You ready? Here they are. They're absolutely brand new. I invented them just now. Read your Bible, number one. Now, I've said this a whole bunch of times. You want to guess what number two is? Pray. You're going to pray, right? Number three, spend time around other mature believers. That's it. You don't need a program. You don't need a DVD. You don't need a book. You need a Bible. You need to get down on your knees. And you need to spend time with other believers. There it is. So let me give you a couple of things here. Ready? Number one, show up. Show up. When I first started uh, pastoring 10 years ago, I wanted you to show up because my ego was contingent on it. I felt really stupid preaching to an empty room. I am begging you now to show up, not to stoke my ego, as if the ego could be stoked by <laughs> hearing torches. 
but because I know it is vital for your faith. You have to show up. If it would help you, I would get down on my knees and beg you. You have to show up. Number two, you have to engage. It's not enough just to show up. An awful lot of people uh, show up and they throw a few bucks in the plate and they say things are going fine and they get out of Dodge and they're useless to the body of Christ. You ever seen that movie, The Incredibles? One of my favorite of all the Pixar movies. I love that movie. Early in that movie, there's the mom and the dad and three kids and they're sitting around the dinner table and they're eating dinner. And mom's trying to interact with the kids and she's asking them how their days are going and little brother's teasing older sister about some boy that she likes, right? And the baby's just going bananas over there in the high chair eating dinner. And dad is hiding behind a newspaper. Yeah, he don't know what's going on. And, and so uh, mom says, uh, Bob, you, you help me out here. And he goes, kids, listen to your mom. <laughs> right? And, and then the kids start fighting. Because they're all superhumans, they really start fighting, man. I mean, they're lifting up tables, and mom's like Stretch Armstrong, and arms are going everywhere, and kids are beating each other. And I remember mom screams out there, Bob, it's time to engage. Do something. Don't just stand there. It's time to intervene. This is what I feel like when we have people come to church and they're in and they're out and I, man, they have just ghosted everybody. I just want to be like, Bob, it's time to engage. Don't just stand there. You got to do something. <laughs> Number one, you got to show up. Show up. Show up on Sunday mornings. Show up to small groups. Show up to the youth stuff when we have stuff for our kids, right? Show up to children's stuff when we have stuff for the children. Show up at Easter. Show up at Christmas. Show up at VBS. Show up when we have guests. Show up when it's just us. Number two, engage. I read a great article this week that talked about how community isn't found. Right? You don't find community. It's a pastor who said, you know, we get a lot of young couples and they come to our church and they say, well, you know, we're just looking for a community. And he tells us the same thing every single time. Community isn't found, it's built. I won't ask other people in the body of Christ to do for me what I am unwilling to do for them. I'm not going to sponge off the body of faith. It's spiritual communism. You have more, so you should give it to me. We are builders living in a body of mutual dependence. Show up. Bob, engage. Father, we have the right and the ability to engage because we have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. What we do is directly dependent on who we are and who we are are Jesus' people, loved by Him, redeemed by Him, made worthy to stand in each other's company in the presence of a Holy Father because of His blood and His body. Help us to be grateful and help us to let that gratitude manifest itself in good works, encouraging one another in love and in, in all those things which glorify you in our transformed lives. In Jesus' name, amen.